Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strong and Allie Terry. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we almost got it that time, you guys. Welcome to our podcast that we own. No. We own it. We... What's that Beyonce song? I, I own see it. it. I want I it. I see it. Uh, no, that's Ariana Grande. No. I said it. I want it. Oh my god! I just realized that like Ariana Grande and Beyonce like preach the same message. Like women's empowerment. Um, mm-hmm. Slay. Slay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make making money. Break up with your boyfriend. Oh, cause I'm bored. Wait. wait. Or no, no, that's break up with your girlfriend. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the opposite of Beyonce, who's like, my husband cheated on me, but <laughs> I'm going to get through it and turn this into lemonade. Do you think, <laughs> do you think that that was all a publicity stunt? I've read conspiracy theories about that. Uh, I think at this point, every one of your heroes is an ad. If there's someone you look up to because notoriety, they're an ad. I mean, they definitely like run things by their PR team first before making it public. They're at least saying, hey, my husband cheated on me. I wanted to like create an album around this. Do you think that's a good idea? I mean, a lot of those songs were written for her. Yeah, right. They're not written by her. That's true. But that's like why she's such a good performer is because she's like acting, like bringing life into those things. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Beyonce and please don't come for me because of Slay. Yes, please be hive. (laughs) (laughs) Love us because we we love Beyonce. You know how she got started? is she went around doing singing competitions. That's why everyone loves the story of someone that just like works their ass off to get where they are and then becomes like a cultural icon, like yeah. reaches the pinnacle of, like she is like the end all be all of pop music. It's like Madonna, no. Beyonce. No. I literally can't even think of, maybe I really can't think of anyone else. Santa Claus. Yes, Slay. 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 Think about how many songs Slay Santa bells. has. He's got Here Comes Santa Claus. No. He's got He Sees You When You're Sleeping. What he else? He knows when you're awake. He's got so many movies about him. He's got Rudolph. He's iconic. He's been around for hundreds of years. Like someone tuning into this right now is like, what the fuck is this <laughs> podcast? Uh, let's explain. Natalia, what is this podcast? I don't want to explain this. We have to explain every single time. It's because we've got new listeners all the time. Did Do you see? We, we just hit um, a thousand followers on it, on Twitter. Is it not all the same people from Instagram? If you're someone who doesn't follow us on other social media, tell us somehow. But also fo- follow us on all of our social media. Twitter at Let's Get Haunted. Instagram at Let's Get Haunted. SoundCloud.com slash Let's Get Haunted. Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Let's Get Haunted. Subreddit r slash Let's Get Haunted. Gmail, if you want to send us your own personal spooky stories, is Let's Get Haunted Pod. P-O-D at gmail.com. I got my Xbox Live account got hacked the other day. I don't know what the purpose of this is. What is the appeal? Um, I don't have anything for you. They're phishing, right? Right. So it's like someone thinking, oh, if I can get into your Spotify, then I can get your email address. Right. And if you're stupid enough that you answer this fake email that says you need to put your password in for this or this fake bank message from Chase that my parents would probably fall for that's like, open up a savings account and we'll give you $5,000. Right. I remember my Snapchat got hacked fairly recently again. I'm not a dumbass, so I don't have nudes anywhere and even if i did like congrats you have a nude there's a thing called revenge porn laws now so you're gonna go to jail it will help me if someone published nudes of me the publicity that i would get for that i could like spin into me being a martyr of like the social media 
feminist movement. Yeah. <laughs> Become a cultural icon yeah, for exactly. the online feminist movement. Okay, so this episode is titled The Lost Lighthouse Keepers of Eileon Moore. Ooh. Now, I want to give a quick special thanks shout out to David Smith, who is a Scottish Twitter follower of mine. And he helped me with the pronunciation for some of these words because they're in Gaelic. David tried his hardest to get me to pronounce these correctly and donated his time and was really nice about it. Okay, so the first one is Aelin Moore. Aelin Moore. Aelin Moore. Aelin Moore. Aelin Moore. Thank you, David. Okay, so Aelin Moore. Oh my god, he was speaking garlic? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... Okay, let me redo that that title then. It's The Lost Lighthouse Keepers of A. Lynn Moore. So, Natalia, do you know, do you want to take a guess where A. Lynn Moore is? Mm, well, it's a moor. Mm-hmm. So it's like cliffs, maybe? Yeah, there's cliffs, definitely. I'm guessing maybe it could be Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, is it Scotland? Well, so that's why I said I wasn't sure if it's technically Scotland or Ireland. I, I like don't know who owns them right now, but they are off the west coast of Scotland, west of the Isle of Lewis. It's a small island group called the Flannan Isles, also known as the Seven Hunters. And they're, it's so small. Like it's really tiny, just like this little grouping of basically like, basically just earth coming out of the ocean. I don't like islands that aren't tropical. Like, it just seems like it's made for ghosts. Like, you're trapped on a cold place. And I'm assuming if this is, like, the rest of my knowledge of what a moor is, it's, like, really windy. Yeah, there, it's definitely super windy. It's it's basically just these small, little, literal mountains of earth in the middle of the ocean. There's, Horrible. like, nothing else there. Yeah. Super rocky, windy um oceany and the islands are split so it's these seven little groups of islands it's these seven little individual islands clustered together in the flannan isles and they're split into three main groups the first group contains the two main islands of island more which means big isle in gaelic and island tag which means house isle and then the second group includes sore meaning eastward isle and Scare Tomain, which means the Tomb of Tomain. What? And the third group includes Ilinagoba, which means Isle of the Blacksmith, and Roarim, and I, which I could not figure out what that meant. I tried to do like Google Translate. I was reading all about these islands. Nobody had the translation listed anywhere. And then Bronaclete, which means Sad Sunk Rock. So these these are already like, what do these names evoke in you? Not luxury. Yeah. Not, a blacksmith, a sad sunk rock. Sounds lonely. They sound really lonely. Like super isolated, right? Yeah. Like out in the middle of the ocean by themselves, super tiny. And we're not entirely sure, like historians aren't entirely sure which St. Flannan the Isles are named after because there were a couple throughout history. Um, however, most historians believe that the Isles are named for St. Flannan, who was a 7th century Irish preacher and abbot. And not much is known of the former inhabitants of the island, but it is likely that either St. Flannan himself or his acolytes lived on Island Moor and perhaps Island Tog as well. We also know that as a result of 9th century Viking invasions, the Celtic church fell into decline and it is unlikely that any permanent residents would have remained after that. 
The isle is home to many species of seabirds, but my favorite that I was reading about is the Atlantic puffin lives there. Oh. And I ate puffin when I went to uh, Iceland. Ew. It, it, you know what? It tasted like beef jerky. Gamey? Um, yeah, a little bit gamey. It was like smoky. Mm. Uh, and it was, it's like black. The, well, how do they prepare it though? Um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it was probably smoked okay. because it, it literally tasted like beef jerky. I ordered it at a restaurant because I thought, well, if I'm in Iceland, I should try some of their traditional they dishes. Just totally gave you beef jerky. They were like, this girl was not going to know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Let's charge her yeah. 50 bucks to try beef jerky. So sheep herders and farmers from the Isle of Lewis used to travel to Island more to graze their flocks of sheep on the Isle's abundant grass and also to raid the nests of seabirds for eggs, birds, and feathers. These sheep herders referred to Island more as, quote-unquote, the other country, implying that it was not of this world. Mm. Local cultural superstition at the time labeled the island as a place of fairies and supernatural creatures. Ooh, I love this. Mm -hmm. The dark outlines of strange figures were sometimes seen in the distance, and there were even reports of grazing sheep suddenly disappearing, never to be seen again. People arriving at the island were taught to perform a ritual at the ruined chapel, which involved crawling on one's knees in a counterclockwise direction. According to superstition, not performing this ritual would result in bodily harm. So Island Moore has the highest point out of all the Flannan Islands with a plateau that is 289 feet above sea level. Currently, the islands are uninhabited, and out of all the isles, only two have man-made structures. Island Tag hosts a ruined stone shelter, and Island Moore has a lighthouse and a ruined chapel dedicated to St. Flannan, after whom the isles are most likely named. So St. Flannan, like I was just telling you that they think it was this 7th century priest who um, had his followers and that they had a monastery established there. And so the ruins of that monastery or church, whatever it was, some religious structure, are still on that island. So it's just like this these ruined, dilapidated stones. And so when people from the Isle of Lewis used to bring their flocks of sheep over there um, in the Middle Ages they would have to perform this ritual at the ruined stone monastery uh, to make sure that nothing would befall them, like no bodily harm would befall them. In the 1800s, trade between America and the British Isles was booming. Trade between countries during that time was primarily done by ship, and as sea trade increased, so did shipwrecks. By the mid-1800s, shipwrecks in the area reached an all-time high. The water surrounding the Flannan Isles was often plagued by violent storms. The storms, in combination with heavy fog, submerged shoals, and low-lying reefs, made for incredibly hazardous sailing conditions. By the late 1800s, seamen were demanding that something be done to make the passage through the Isles safer. In response to these demands, the Board of Trade gave permission for a 1,000 candle power light to be constructed on one of the Flannan Isles. The main island of the group, Island Moore, was decided upon as being the most suitable since it had a relatively flat and grassy area on top of the island and there was plenty of space well elevated from the waterline. The lighthouse was designed by David Allen Stevenson and was 70 feet tall. It was erected on top of a steep cliff that had a sheer drop of 150 feet into the sea on one side. Uh. I know. Like, just a sheer, and if you see pictures of it, it's literally just like a sheer drop off the side, like rocks down below, ocean down below. Stevenson wrote in a report 
that Island Moor was the best of the Flannan Isles for the location of the much-needed lighthouse because it was the only island with a high enough point to where the ocean would not engulf it. Stevenson wrote out a budget and estimated that it would take four years to complete construction. Construction began in 1895, and the project was carried out by prominent builder George Lawson of Rutterglen, which is just a city. Mm -hmm. During construction, the clerk of works, Mr. Diaz, died suddenly. The cause of death was never determined. It was as if the man had simply dropped dead. Following the death of Mr. Diaz, an additional two builders inexplicably fell off the side of the cliff near the lighthouse. No. Other builders complained about often feeling the presence of someone watching them as they worked. Some workers also claimed to hear disembodied voices calling out to them, but these complaints were quickly explained away as being seagulls that were crying and echoing through the cliffs. Between 1895 and 1899, the Flannan Isles Lighthouse was built near the highest point on Island Moor, and lighthouse keepers were brought over to live on the island. One principal keeper and two assistant keepers uh, at a time, so it would be three guys at a time living there, and normally the assistants would be rotated out six weeks at a time, and so this meant that the island is literally empty, completely empty, except for these three lighthouse keepers. Mm, you better pick your good friends right i know can you imagine having to hang out with people for months at a time like just three of you i'm pretty much like a permanent third wheel fixture between (laughs) all my friends so like that doesn't seem that much of a leap right yeah and there's no girls on the island obviously there's no ladies on the island so it's just these like three burly lighthouse keeper dudes living in like a really small is there like some broke back mountain stuff going to happen? I wish. Nothing, <laughs> nothing so spicy. Oh, no. Okay. These first lighthouse keepers introduced rabbits to the island as a source of food because they basically had to like fend for themselves because they're alone on this island. And these, they're... These rabbits really got a hard hand dealt. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they're like, you're going to go to this literal prison where you can just randomly get fall off the side of it because ghosts call you off of it or something. Right. There is a photo of the Islandmore Lighthouse, which uh, from a postcard in the early 1900s. I see it. And then that picture on the right is the lighthouse keepers and their superintendent. Oh, they look like old like train conductors. Yeah, don't they? Oh, they have these awesome handlebar mustaches that like take they cover their lips entirely. I I just love it. I saw that photo and I was like, this is amazing. That is literally that's what the island looks like. Look how tiny it is. Oh, yeah. This looks like something that would be on a Pinterest page. You or I would be like, we have to go there. Yeah. And we'd spend like thousands of dollars to get to the spot yeah, to right? take a picture. And then we get there and we're like, okay. Yeah, like this wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I was kind of kicking myself when I was writing the story because I was like, shit, we were not close at all. But like we went to Isle of Skye. Like yeah. we, we should have taken a helicopter to Island <laughs> Lewis and then taken a boat to Island Moore. Also, so looking at that photo, it's completely isolated. And the only thing on that island uh, is the lighthouse and then that ruined stone monastery, which you can see in that right photo. Yeah, I see that. I mean, I don't know what this monastery looked like before, but it actually it just looks like someone piled up rocks. Yeah, it looks like super dilapidated and small and like not like a place you'd want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So also the other thing that really made this area so isolated is that uh, there was no radio link 
between Isle of Lewis and Island Moor. So Isle of Lewis had people living on it. Um, and, and Island Moor only had the lighthouse keepers and there was no radio link between the two areas. So they're completely isolated from society while they're on this island doing their job. So once on the island, the lighthouse keepers had to fend for themselves until replacement keepers were dispatched via ship to relieve them of their duties every six weeks. But so every six weeks, but there's an asterisk after that because the primary lighthouse keeper or PLK, I had to read so much about lighthouse keepers. <laughs> that guy does not get to switch out every six weeks. It was basically like a military style, um, like you're being stationed at this lighthouse. Mm -hmm. You stay there until we decide that your watch is over and we can move you to any other lighthouse that we want in the world and your family moves with you. So it's very much like military style where people are moving from base to base with their families. I mean, what amount of skill goes into keeping a lighthouse? Oh, I'll tell you because I had to read so much about lighthouse keepers and I have a whole list of their duties. Yeah, I'm really like, it's not just turn the light on and turn no. it off. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I know, right? That's what I was thinking too. No, it's so, it's so much more. Okay. A station house was built in Besclet, which is a village on the Isle of Lewis where lighthouse keepers' families and alternate lighthouse keepers called relief keepers would live. So every six weeks, the relief keeper would be brought over in a boat to uh, Island Moor to switch out with one of the assistant lighthouse keepers. Mm. And then all the families would live in this town of Besclet on Isle of Lewis. Lighthouse keepers were expected to keep watch one at a time, ensuring that the light within the lighthouse remained lit and signaling the foghorn if a ship traveled too close to the island's coast. There were three shifts, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Ooh, I bet that 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. one is Sounds spooky, one. right? Yeah. At 6 a.m., the keeper would extinguish the light as the light was not necessary when the sun was up. After extinguishing the light and pulling the curtains over, whoever had the morning watch would make all preparations for lighting up again the next night. Brief details of the night's activities were recorded with pen and paper ready to be transferred to the official logbook, which only the primary lighthouse keeper, or PLK, was allowed to touch. The ALK, or assistant lighthouse keeper, working the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift, would be allowed to sleep while the PLK and other ALK would carry out any cleaning, painting, maintenance, or repair work on a daily basis. The typical duties of the principal lighthouse keeper and his assistant lighthouse keepers was as follows. Each weekday morning, the PLK and usually one ALK would gather together in the engine room to be advised of what the morning's tasks would be whether cleaning, painting, maintenance, or any other tasks that needed to be carried out. The work detail lasted until lunchtime, at which point the keepers would get some sleep since they would be keeping watch later in the day. The keepers would also be responsible for weather observations, keeping track of outside temperature using a thermometer, which they were expected to keep daily recordings of. One of the ALKs would be designated cook for the week. All keepers were extensively trained on the importance of sleep, as falling asleep during a shift could be disastrous for any nearby ships passing through. The light was first turned on in early December of 1899. The light had a distance of 20 miles and flashed every 30 seconds. So this flashing mechanism that they had literally had to be wound up. So that's why they weren't allowed to fall asleep. This was not an automated lighthouse system. They had to make sure that the candles were staying lit 
and that so that you know the light oh, projects actual candles mm-hmm. oh. and they had to wind it up so that way like the flashing mechanism would continue to circulate and then if a ship got too close or if it was really foggy and they were worried that passing ships wouldn't be able to see the light then they would just put the fog horn on indefinitely mm-hmm. and so they got really really good at tuning out that noise because they're in this little little tiny lighthouse there's no other structure to sleep in they're just sleeping in the lighthouse and the sound of the engine room is super loud and then the fog horn is super loud and i was reading this one story um about a lighthouse keeper that worked in the 1900s and he wrote about his experience and he was like he ended up going crazy when he retired because everything in normal life quote unquote is too quiet what mm-hmm. like was too quiet for him he was so used to all these loud noises yeah and so it like literally the silence drove him crazy that's like me i have to put a wind machine on in my room at night otherwise i can hear too many things that are specific yeah. you know and i'm like oh what's that car doing outside you right know, like, yeah or hear... like white noise machine yeah or i'm something. like oh someone's coming home late Despite being lit in 1899, the lighthouse wasn't completely finished and operational until October of 1900. Once declared operational, the first three lighthouse keepers were dispatched to the island to tend to the lighthouse. About every 20 days, a ship named Hesperus would sail from Lewis to Island Moor, bringing with it fresh provisions and one relief keeper who would alternate with one of the others on the island. The principal keeper was 43-year-old James Ducat, an affable married man from Arbroath, a town in Scotland, who had four young children, the youngest of whom was just seven years old, and 21 years, and he had 21 years of lighthouse keeping experience under his belt. His two assistants were William Ross and Thomas Marshall. Marshall was 28 years old, and I couldn't find Ross's age anywhere, but he was probably around the same age as Marshall since he was an assistant as well. Okay. Marshall was unmarried and lived at home with his dad and his sister. James Ducat, the principal keeper, did not want to go to Island Moor. He told the Northern Lighthouse Board that it would be very stressful for him to be located on an island for months at a time with no radio service, leaving his wife and four young children at home without him. In the end, the board begged him to go until he agreed. They wanted someone with his unblemished and experienced record to be the first principal keeper on the island while the lighthouse got up and running. During the construction of the lighthouse, Ducat spent 14 months living on the island, familiarizing himself with the geography and the conditions. Finally, with the lighthouse built and the keepers chosen, Ducat, Ross, and Marshall were stationed on the island. The superintendent of lighthouses, Robert Muirhead, went along on the trip to do a routine check of the lighthouse and to make sure everything was in perfect working order for the men. The building was regularly monitored by telescopes from the mainland to ensure that the keepers could signal someone in case of an emergency. But during this particular visit, Murhead spoke to Ducat, informing him that they were having some visibility issues with heavy mist that might inhibit their view from land for a short time. Murhead departed and the men got to work. The days were long and lonely, but they worked steadily and without incident into December. Hold on a second. So he's saying the not the main guy, the younger one of the younger ones is saying, even though you have on the mainland the ability to see this lighthouse, 
um, because the weather has been so foggy, there are going to be times that you can't see it. So when so as they're being stationed on the island, the superintendent Robert Murhead comes out with them to just because this is the first and this is a brand new lighthouse, yeah. and so this is like Murhead's pet project, and he's like, okay, I real I need like. Uh, Ducat because he has 21 years of lighthouse experience. He's going to be my principal keeper. Like I'm going to make sure everything's good. Then we got Ross um, and we got the other guy whose name is Marshall. Marshall's the 28 year old. So he's like talking to them and he's like, hey, so there's no radio link. But if you need us, we're going to be monitoring you guys from the Isle of Lewis with a telescope every day. So if you need us, you can signal us using your lighthouse light. Mm -hmm. However, it's so foggy right now that we're not going to be able to see you for a few nights. But don't worry about it. Once the fog clears up, we're going to keep checking and making sure you guys are okay. Okay. Yeah. So towards the end of 1900, assistant William Ross became very ill and had to go home to Lewis on sick leave. This meant that Thomas Marshall was suddenly promoted to acting second assistant, and when the Hesperus arrived to relieve uh, to relieve Ross and take him home, uh, Ross was replaced with a steady rotation of occasional keepers, and Marshall and Ducat were to remain on the island training these occasional keepers one by one. Okay. Okay. So, in December of 1900, the occasional keeper was 40-year-old Donald MacArthur, from Breastcleat, which is that um, same city where all of the other lighthouse keeper families are living on the Isle of Lewis. And back on the Isle of Lewis, MacArthur was revered by the townsfolk. He was a former soldier and tailor who had married the only nurse on the Isle of Lewis, and as such, they were both very popular. <laughs> one of his children, Callum, was one of the best pupils on the island as well. MacArthur was also extremely religious and active in the Free Presbyterian Church, but he was known to have a volatile temper and was an inexperienced keeper having less than a year's work experience. So basically Ross gets sick. He has to go back on the Hesperus and the Hesperus brings this occasional keeper to just like stand in for him temporarily while he's ill. And this occasional keeper is MacArthur. Okay. On the 7th of December, the three men began their watch. The winds were especially strong, so the men made sure to either stay inside or stay close to the lighthouse at all times. On the 12th of December, a heavy fog rolled in, which meant that no ships would be able to reach them, and the lighthouse would not be visible from the Isle of Lewis. This meant that if the men needed to signal for help using their light, they would not be able to. On the 14th of December at 10 p.m., the watch changed and Donald MacArthur, the new guy, took over for James Ducat. There were strong winds blowing and a heavy swell, which was the build-up to a storm. Once MacArthur was ready, the first thing he did was go straight up to the lighthouse room, the light room, on the relatively short tower, and check that everything was in order and functioning properly. He would have alternated his time between the lantern room and the kitchen. Periodically, he would, he would make sure he was in the light room to wind the mechanism back to its starting point to keep the light turning and giving out its flashes. Ducat and Marshall would have been sound asleep. MacArthur's watch would have ended at 2 a.m. on December 15th. On the 15th of December, Captain Holman of the steamship Arctor, which was traveling from Philadelphia in, to Philadelphia in America to Leith in Scotland, radioed that no beacon flashed from the Flannan Lighthouse northwest of Cape Wrath. The captain thought that this was very strange. Despite heavy fog obscuring vision, the Arctur was sailing close enough to the island that he should have been able to make out the lighthouse's flash every 30 seconds. 
The lighthouse was brand new and should still be functioning properly after all. Unable to continue in the bad weather with the lighthouse not functioning, Captain Holman docked his ship in Oban, Scotland, and made a report to the Northern Lighthouse Board recommending that they investigate why the light at Island Moor wasn't on. The Northern Lighthouse Board received the report, but due to bad weather, was not able to travel to Island Moor right away. The weather was terrible, with violent waves, thick fogs, and rain. Most ships had to be kept in harbor until after Christmas Day. On the 26th of December, Captain James Harvey set sail on the Hesperus to journey from Brescleet to Island Moor. As Harvey sailed closer, he took out his binoculars and immediately frowned. He was met with a sense of foreboding. Normally, the keepers raised a flag to acknowledge the arrival of the supply ship and relief keeper, but this time there were no flags and empty supply boxes that were normally left out for collection were nowhere to be found. Oh no. I know. Jim Harvey's concern... And on Christmas, they have to do this crappy job. Yeah, right? The day after Christmas. Jim Harvey's concern turned to panic, and he blasted the ship's foghorn, hoping to get the keeper's attention. Perhaps they were sick, or a keeper had been injured, and that's why the flagpole was empty? Still, Harvey got no response from the lighthouse. He dug through the emergency supply store aboard the ship and pulled out a few signal flares, firing them into the sky one by one. Still, there was no answer from the lighthouse. Harvey was now close enough to be able to see the lighthouse clearly. There was no one waiting at the shore for his ship. No one shouting from inside or near the lighthouse. No light flashing. No response at all. Everything was still and quiet. There was no option for Captain Harvey but to send his second mate to paddle ashore with relief keeper Joseph Moore while in a longboat to investigate. Moore knew all three lighthouse keepers well, and while paddling, occasionally shouted towards the lighthouse, I'm coming! Hang tight! We're on our way! We're coming! He kept expecting to hear one of his friends shout a response, but the island remained quiet and still. Finally, the two men reached the jetty and climbed out of the boat onto the island. Both men were overcome with anxiety that they had never felt before. It felt like a wave of darkness had washed over them. The island was completely still. Not even rabbits or birds could be heard, which was highly unusual. In fact, the only thing Moore noticed as he climbed up towards the lighthouse was an odd species of seaweed that he'd never seen before. It was an odd color and seemed to glow with some bioluminescent property. Clumps of the seaweed lined the path neatly from the jetty to the lighthouse gate, as if purposefully placed there by someone or something. Moore approached the lighthouse door. He had a spare key with him in order to open it, but alarmingly, the door was unlocked. The door opened directly into a passage leading to a small kitchen where the men made their meals. The kitchen door, which would normally have been shut at all times, was wide open. Moore entered the kitchen. The fire had been laid, but not lit. The dishes had been washed and neatly put away. However, on the table was a partially eaten meal and a chair that had been thrown over and lay with its back on the floor, as if whoever had been eating had been suddenly interrupted and risen from the food in great haste. Moore noticed an odd smell in the kitchen, but he couldn't figure out exactly what the smell was, and within a few minutes, the smell dissipated completely. Moore then moved on to check the storehouse, living area, and sleeping quarters. All of the beds had been neatly made, as if the lighthouse were still occupied. Climbing into the lamp turret, Moore noted that everything was in order. The lamps had been filled with oil and their wicks trimmed, ready for lighting. 
As Moore moved throughout the lighthouse, he noticed that all of the clocks in the various rooms had stopped working at 3 a.m. What? Every single clock in the lighthouse. In every room, Moore called out to his fellow lighthouse keeper friends, but got no response. A chill came over his body as he realized no one was there. Where are they? So, well, we don't know. So he finishes looking through the lighthouse and he decides to move on to search the rest of the island. And you saw from that picture, the island is not big. Yeah, it's like the size of, a, I don't know, like a few acres. Yeah, it's super small. So he decided to move on and search the rest of the island. He searched pathways, crags, cliffs, and even walked up to the ruins of the tiny monastery, but found nothing. Near the walls of the church, Moore suddenly heard a distant voice calling to him. He spun around but saw no one. He called out and thought he heard the voice of James Ducat calling back to him asking for help. But the voice sounded strained and odd. Moore called out again. This time, no one responded. Was his mind playing tricks on him? Maybe it was the cries of the seagulls and wishful thinking. Moore was overcome with the feeling that someone was watching him. Eventually, Moore returned to the Hesperus to inform Harvey of the situation. The captain ordered that he return to Island Moore and secure the light, but that a group led by Harvey himself would accompany him and make a thorough search of the island in case Moore had overlooked some place where bodies might be found. No way in hell after finding that place is empty and all the clocks have stopped and there's like a weird voice would I go and stay there? I know. I like have chills right now because I'm. Th- he's like looking by this weird haunted monastery mm-hmm. where people in olden times used to have to perform this ritual every time they came on the island so that like ghosts wouldn't haunt them. Yeah. And he hears this weird disembodied voice calling out for help. But there's the island is so small. Like I is can't emphasize this enough. Maybe. I mean, what is the, you know, what's the explanation for that? And so the explanation that he tells himself is, oh, well, it's just, I'm, you know, wishful thinking because I'm worried yeah. about my friends and it's clearly just a seagull, you know, crying and it's echoing off the, the cliffs and it's like my mind's playing tricks on me. So the five, so five men paddle ashore, Moore, Harvey, the buoy master, Alan McDonald, and two seamen, Campbell and Lamont, and they begin a painstaking search of the place. Upon even further inspection, the lighthouse yielded more mysteries. The oil skins that hung in the store belonging to Ducat and Marshall were gone, but those belonging to Donald MacArthur still hung there. Had something happened that caused two of the keepers to put on their overcoats and go outside? The oil skin would be like, they're thinking that it's like a storm coming, right? Yes. Like it's so out- they got to keep warm, mm-hmm. so they're going to put on this, like, what's a scent? An oil suit or oil skin is essentially, it keeps you from getting wet. It's like a dry suit, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. like super thick and like keeps your body heat in. Mm-hmm. So if you're going outside in a treacherous storm, you're going to put on this oil skin. If two of the people put them on, maybe the other guy was going crazy. Maybe. So that's what they're asking themselves. They're saying, had something happened that caused the two keepers to put on their overcoats and go outside? And if that's the case, would MacArthur have followed them wearing only his shirt sleeves in the middle of a storm? Down at the second jetty, they found evidence of a wicked storm that had battered the Flannan Isles. The jetty's surrounding railings and mooring equipment was badly damaged, and a small store that held gear was missing. A toolbox that was normally stored in this area was found open and with its contents scattered halfway up a cliff. 
Ropes that had also been stored there were found wrapped around a temporary crane seven feet above normal sea level. Harvey and his men continued to search, which didn't take long since the island itself was only 39 acres and barren, meaning a body wouldn't be able to stay hidden for long. Like, 39 acres is nothing. I work on farms, and 39 acres is so ridiculously small. Like, you would... It's like, if you're on 39 acres, you can look out in any direction and see anything. Wait, so this rope that was found, they had made a crane? So when the... Since, you know, this was like a new construction I was mentioning. So there was a temporary crane that was built into the cliff that they had just left there, the builders, and they hadn't removed it yet. Oh, um, the, so the men found nothing, not a trace of scattered clothing, much less a body. Baffled, Harvey ordered everyone to walk back up to the lighthouse to see if any of the men had left a note or written something odd in their logbook. The men reached the lighthouse and went back inside. Harvey located the log that only James Ducat was allowed to write in since those were part of the duties of a primary lighthouse keeper. From December 7th to December 11th, the entries were immaculate. Ducat's handwriting and keeper expertise were unmistakable, and he diligently logged the tides, the currents, the fog, passing ships, and moods of the sea. However, on December 12th, there was an abrupt shift in handwriting. Ducat's immaculate, neat lettering was replaced by the broader hand of Thomas Marshall, the second assistant keeper. This in and of itself was unusual, but the contents of the entries only deepened the mystery. So I'm going to read you the last log entries of the lighthouse keepers. Okay. Okay. Log book, December 12th, 1900. Gale north by northwest. Sea lashed to a fir. Never seen such a storm. Waves very high, tearing at the lighthouse. Everything ship shape. James Ducat irritable. Storm still raging, wind steady. Storm bound, cannot go out. Ship passing and sounding foghorn, could see the cabin lights. Ducat quiet, MacArthur crying. Logbook, December 13th, 1900. Storm continued through the night. Wind shifted west by north. Ducat quiet, MacArthur praying. Logbook, December 14th, 1900. No entry. Logbook, December 15th, 1900. Noon, gray daylight. Me, Ducat, MacArthur praying. 1 p.m. Storm ended. Sea calm. God is over all. Sounds like there's a really bad storm. Right. And they're scared. Yes. However, it's weird. Why is the primary lighthouse keeper not writing these entries? And why... I'm going to talk a little bit more about the other things that are weird about the entries, but... Why is he mentioning, like, God is over all? Like, this is not supposed to be something where you write your opinions. This is where you log the weather, the temperature, the waves, passing ships, number of ships, times, anything. You know, like, this is not where you're talking about your religion or how you're praying. I think the biggest mystery is, why is this guy writing in it? If yes, absolutely. Alive. That's I know. I totally agree. So here it appears, Marshall's account ended with no real indication as to what had befallen him or his companions. Yet the entries remain the most contentious part of the story. It seems strange that unless something serious had befallen the principal keeper, the assistant would have taken over the log in such a fashion. Besides, the entries read more like those in a diary than in a formal log, 
making personal comments about Marshall's companions rather than recording sea conditions. Why, in such an important record, would Marshall state that Ducat was irritable? It could be read by the principal keeper's superior and count against him. And why should a hardened former soldier like Donald MacArthur be crying? And why should the assistant keeper record an overtly religious comment, God is over all, in a station log, especially when it was known that Marshall was not a religious man? And there is one further point to consider. It was the custom for entries to be chalked up on the board beside the logbook while they were checked for accuracy, for example, wind strengths, before being formally transferred to the page by the primary lighthouse keeper. Some sources say that there were a number of other entries written there that had never been transcribed and that Harvey and later Murhead, the superintendent, removed them in a cover-up. Some others say that the entries of the log were falsified by Harvey to add an element of mystery to the events. Interestingly, the Flannan logbook has since mysteriously and conveniently disappeared and is no longer available. What? Captain Jim Harvey was both puzzled and horrified. He had no idea what had happened to the vanished keepers, but he suspected that all three might be dead. His initial conclusion was that they had somehow carried, been carried away by heavy seas at the lower jetty. Perhaps Donald MacArthur had been interrupted in his meal and had rushed out to help his colleagues without putting on his oilskins, and he too had been swept away. Perhaps the original men working on the jetty might have been hit by a freak wave, but a second wave following so closely and striking in exactly the same place and taking the third man stretched coincidence. All three men were experienced keepers and well used to the ways of the sea, so why should they have been taken so unawares? And why should an experienced keeper and former soldier like Donald MacArthur go out into a raging tempest without any form of protective clothing? Leaving Joseph Moore in charge of the light, so that's the assistant, the occasional keeper that came to relieve um, duties. Mm -hmm. um, leaving Joseph Moore in charge of the light, accompanied by MacDonald and two seamen, Harvey returned to the Hesperus and sailed back to Brescleet on the Isle of Lewis, where he sent a telegram to Robert Murhead informing him of what had happened. And I'm going to read you the telegram. Okay. Okay. So, telegram from Master of Hesperus, sent on the 26th of December, 1900. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life to, was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land more, who went up to the station and found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped at 3 a.m., and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, MacDonald, Bowie Master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Murhead in case you are not home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. It's... I'm going to make another just random guess here because I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking it if I'm thinking it. Right. If the clocks are stopped at 3 a.m., that would be one hour into the last person's shift. Yes. Yes. Right. Good observation. Right. So, and if there's two oilskins missing... What if it's murder? So someone had their, the two oil skins go missing because that's your only lifeline. You stop the clock at 3 a.m. 
And if he stalked those like seaweed things there to make a light back up so that he could find his way back after he murdered That's a them. good theory. I don't know. And also, so I'm glad you brought up the seaweed. Like, that's so weird that none of these seamen, these experienced seamen that came over on the Hesperus, none of them knew what kind of seaweed that was. Like, and it's arranged in neat piles. Right. If there was this crazy storm, it could have washed in weird seaweed or sea creatures. Yes, definitely. On December 29th, three days after the Hesperus had found the lighthouse deserted, Murhead arrived to conduct a formal NLB investigation. He allegedly found little else, although the rumor still persists that he and Harvey covered certain things up there. Although Harvey had estimated the disappearance of the keepers as being between the 20th of December, six days before their arrival, Murhead revised this back to the 15th. He cited the punctuality of the log housekeeping and the report by Captain Holman of the Arkdor that no light had been seen then. Harvey's report stated that every clock in the lighthouse had stopped at exactly the same time. The men allegedly worked until around midday on the 15th, Murr had concluded, and then something momentous happened. He did, however, agree with Harvey that the keepers had most likely been carried away by the sea. Ducat and Marshall had gone down to the lower jetties. This is the theory of Murhead in his official report. Mm -hmm. He thinks that Ducat and Marshall had gone down to the lower jetty to check on storm damage and had been overwhelmed by a wave. Hearing their cries for help, MacArthur, who had been eating a meal, had rushed to save them, but had been swept away by a second wave. However, it was pointed out that with the roar of the wind, it would be difficult to hear the cries from the jetty up in the lighthouse. So the account was later changed to a situation in which MacArthur had actually seen the waves coming and had to run to warn the other two. This ignored the fact that it was impossible to see the second jetty from the back kitchen, where presumably MacArthur had been eating. The differences between all of these accounts became more and more confused. Besides the difference regarding the logbook and the clocks, questions were now asked as to whether there had actually been an overthrown chair and a half-eaten meal or whether there had been something else. It was also suggested that there had also been a message written on the keeper's blackboard that either Harvey or Murr had wiped off. Gradually, however, Robert Murhead's account was accepted. It tied everything up very neatly and was accept acceptable to the NLB. That was his job after all, and he carried it out with great efficiency. At the beginning of 1901, a temporary crew arrived to take over the Flannan Light. The acting principal keeper was John Milne, principal keeper at the Tiumpin Headlight, northeast of Stornoway. Donald Jack was first assistant, and together with Joseph Moore, they manned the remote lighthouse until Murhead could make his report. Milne, of course, had another brief, to keep an eye out for the bodies washing ashore, or for anything that would explain the disappearance of the previous keepers. There were a number of rocky crevices known as geos on Island Moor, and Murhead thought that perhaps the bodies of the three men would wind up in one of these coastal drains. Milne, however, found nothing. Later, he would confess that he didn't like the posting on the island. There was, he said, a heavy presence about the lighthouse. A number of times, as he was working, he turned, feeling someone's gaze on his back, fully expecting to see somebody there, but there was no one. Several times, he thought that he heard voices, when Jack and Moore were not present. At the end of his tour of duty, John Milne reported that he was very glad to leave Island Moore behind. 
On September 28, 1971, the lighthouse was automated and therefore no longer do any lighthouse keepers occupy the land. The island remains uninhabited, alone, steeped in mystery. In 1912, author and poet Wilfred Wilson Gibson published an epic titled Flannan Isle, where he writes from the perspective of someone searching for the lost lighthouse keepers. And it's really long, so, I mean, I guess not that long, but I'm going to read the whole thing, and then if you only want to keep the last part in, you can. Okay. Okay. Flannan Isle. Though three men dwell on Flannan Isle to keep the lamp alight, as we steered under the lee, we caught no glimmer through the night. A passing ship at dawn had brought the news, and quickly we set sail to find out what strange thing might ail the keepers of the deep sea light. The winter day broke blue and bright with glancing sun and glancing spray, as o'er the swell our boat made way as gallant as a goal in flight. But as we neared the lonely isle and looked up at the naked height and saw the lighthouse towering white with blinding lantern that all night had never shot a spark of comfort through the dark, so ghostly in the cold sunlight it seemed that we were struck with that we struck the while with wonder all too dread for words and as into the tiny creek we stole beneath the hanging crag we saw three queer black ugly birds too big by far in my belief for golemint or shag like seamen sitting bolt upright upon a half-tide reef but as we neared they plunged from sight without a sound or spurt of white and still too amazed to speak we landed and made fast the boat and climbed the the track in single file, each wishing he was safe afloat, on any sea, however far, so it be far from Flannan Isle, and still we seemed to climb and climb, and though we'd lost all count of time, and so must climb for evermore, yet all too soon we reached the door, the black sun-blistered lighthouse door that gaped for us ajar. As on the threshold for a spell, we paused, we seemed to breathe the smell of lime wash and of tar, familiar as our daily breath, as though twere something strange scent of death. And so yet wondering side by side, we stood a moment still tongue-tied, and each with black foreboding eyed, the door ere we should fling it wide, to leave the sunlight for the gloom, till plucking up the courage at last, hard on each other's heels we passed into the living room. Yet as we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread, for dinner meat and cheese and bread, but all untouched and no one there as though when they sat down to eat, ere they could even taste, alarm had come, and they in haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for at the table had a chair lay tumbled on the floor. We listened, but we only heard the feeble cheeping of a bird that starved upon its perch, and listening still without a word, we set about our hopeless search. We hunted high, we hunted low, and soon, the ransack and soon ransacked the empty house, then o'er the island to and fro we ranged to listen and to look in every cranny, cleft, or nook that might have hit a bird or mouse, but though we searched from shore to shore, we found no sign in any place, and soon again stood face to face before the gaping door, and stole into the room once more as frightened children steal. I, though we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere, of the three men's fate we found no trace, of any kind, in any place, but a door ajar, an untouched meal, and an overtoppled chair. And as we listened in the gloom of that forsaken living room, a chill clutch on our breath, we thought how ill chance come to all who kept the flannen light, and how the rock had been the death of many a likely lad, how six had come to a sudden end and three had gone stark mad, and one of whom we'd all known as friend had leapt from the lantern one still night and fallen dead by the lighthouse wall, and long we thought 
of the three we sought and of what might yet befall. Like curs a glance has brought to heel, we listened flinching there, and looked and looked on the untouched meal and the overtoppled chair. We seemed to stand for an endless while, though still no word was said, three men alive on Flannan Isle, who thought on three men dead. The end. In that poem, he says someone jumped off? So his theory is that one of the men went crazy and jumped off the side of the lighthouse, and then the other two men went to go help him and fell into the ocean. That's this poet's theory. And then, so I want to tell you about the other theories that people have. Murhead's theory is that they were all washed to sea while trying to secure equipment. Another theory is that while trying to secure equipment, two subsequent waves came and surprised the men and washed them out to sea. Some people think that they were lured outside by something strange in the water and then pulled into the ocean by a kraken. Some people think they were eaten by evil seabirds. Think of the movie The Birds. Mm. Because the seagulls on this island have a reputation for having human voices and being, like, enchanted. And that's why people, like, think they hear people screaming, but it's just the birds imitating, um, like, human noises because they're enchanted birds. Some people think they were kidnapped and killed by pirates. Uh, because actually in this area, there were, um, some like pirate ships actually that would come, but they, they never came to lighthouses. They would have no reason to exactly. do that. Like pirates, they're professional criminals. They don't just like kill for fun. Exactly. And also there's nothing in on this Island. There's nothing in the lighthouse of value and they need that lighthouse anyway. If it's storming and they're sailing their pirate ship nearby, they're relying on that light to not crash. The fact that all the clocks are stopped at 3 a.m., to me, I feel like that's a professional thing. Like, whoever did that knew that it would be an hour into the last person's shift. So if they were to wake up, they would think, like, oh, it's 3 a.m., it's not my turn, or I'm still working. And so some people think they were pulled into another dimension, or some other supernatural force got them. And the backup for that is that throughout history, this whole place has always been like a wash in mystery. And people as far back as the Middle Ages reported disappearing sheep. And this is, we're not talking about like sheep falling off the side of a cliff. Like this is a very small island. Sheep herders could see all of their sheep and sheep would just disappear into thin air. And they could never find where the sheep went or what happened to them. And also people reported hearing strange voices calling out to them, which we already talked about, feeling like someone is watching. I mean, even the the newest lighthouse keepers reported that they constantly felt like someone was watching them. Um, another theory is that sirens lured the men into the sea and that maybe when Moore heard what he thought was Ducat calling out to him when he was by the church, maybe that was actually a siren trying to lure him into to his death yeah i like that i like that one too another theory is abducted by aliens which has i mean i love that but the seaweed being stacked could be siren type thing yeah right yeah i think so too and then keith mccloskey an author who has visited the island and written books on the subject said some but not all of the lighthouse lens apparatus floated in a bath of mercury rather than being placed on rollers. The Mm. Island Moor Station was one which used a bath of mercury. Being exposed to mercury can have different effects on people. Yeah, they went crazy, I bet. Yeah, some can be badly affected by it, while others appear to not have any untoward effects at all. 
The expression mad as a hatter, which we all know, comes from milliners who went mad wor working with mercury in the course of their hat making. A theory is that one of the keepers may have been affected by the mercury vapor over a period of time and driven mad eventually by this. He may have run out of the lighthouse with the other two following him to try to calm him down and bring him back to safety. Under the conditions that afternoon of high winds and heavy seas, it is possible that the keeper affected by the mercury may have gone over a cliff while the other two trying to rescue him all perished. There are some reports that during the Middle Ages, the Flannan Isles were used for funeral pyres to burn bodies of the dead that had been infected by disease. Mm. And so um, because there are some records that support this, people say, well, that is literally why this island is haunted. I think that if there was this crazy storm, these guys can't go outside because waves are like, have literally, they're going to die if they go outside. Mm -hmm. They're going to get taken. Right. right. And if they're cooped inside with this mercury and they can't leave, Maybe that's why they went crazy. But for me, I'm just like, I can't figure out why the clock thing. Yes, the clock. And 3 a.m. is like that's traditionally, it's a, it's the witching hour. Also, the clumps of very organized bioluminescent seaweed mm -hmm. being lined up in a very clearly man man-made pattern. Mm -hmm. Like it's not so, like maybe it was washed ashore, obviously, during the storm. But the fact that it was put in these clumps lined perfectly along the pathway leading from the jetty to the lighthouse door indicates that a human did that. Right. And if it was bioluminescent, maybe they were thinking this is going to light the path. Yeah, it could have been. can't see mm -hmm. because a candle wouldn't work. Right. Um, the other thing, though, is so the very last entry says 1 p.m. Storm is over. Uh, God is God is above us or something like that. And so some people think that God is above us is them saying there's some presence here, like a supernatural presence, be it an alien or something else, that has come and stopped the storm and is literally above us. Or they could be saying, he could be saying, thank God the storm's over, like God's right. above us. But the guy was not storm. religious, is what they were saying. He was like one of the few people in the on the Isle of Lewis who did not attend the church. And it still doesn't explain why he was writing instead of the principal keeper. And it also doesn't explain why the entries are so unprofessional. If he had something to say that was like... Maybe he's the one that went crazy. Could have been. Um, and killed Ducat. And that's why he's writing in the logbook instead of Ducat. He could have pushed him. Yeah, pushed him off or something. I don't know. And just went nuts and was like... Well, he's writing that... Is it consistent who he says is praying every time? It, no, it switches. It's like one time it's so-and-so praying, and the next time it's a different person praying? So the first entry, it, he says, MacArthur is crying, Ducat is quiet and irritable. Then the next entry, he says, MacArthur is praying, Ducat is quiet. Then there's no entry for the following day, which is super unusual. Like you, Their entire job that they're being paid to do is to log all of these specific weather conditions, and he doesn't write anything that day. And then the he next day... He could have just faked it. Like he could have just... Wrote stuff after the yeah. fact. Yeah, that's true too. And then the last day, the 15th, is the one where he says, we're all praying. And then the update is at 1 p.m. where he says, storm is over, clear skies, God is above us. I don't know. I don't know either. And so if, if it were that the storm is over and they let then like it doesn't then it doesn't make sense that they were swept out to sea and even experts that I was reading to you their theories they're saying Murhead's 
formal explanation of what happened that he submitted to the Northern Lighthouses board doesn't make sense because let's say that two of them did get washed to sea by a sneaker wave, right? A wave that they thought the storm was over and then there's a rogue wave comes and hits them and washes them out. How does that explain MacArthur being washed out by a second sneaker wave? And how would he have heard the cries he wouldn't have over the sound of the engine, of the foghorn, of the wind? How would he have heard his compatriots screaming slash so then Murr had realized that and he changed his report and said oh no no he didn't hear screams he saw the wave out the window well that doesn't make sense either because if he was sitting in the kitchen eating his food which we know he was he that window you cannot see the, those Do we waves. know it was his food though being eaten he yes because we know that he was the only person on that shift and so it, since the clocks were stopped at 3, like you noted, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. was um, the new guy's shift, MacArthur. That was his shift. And so the other two guys would have been asleep because, like I read at the beginning, these guys take their sleep super seriously because they understand that falling asleep during a shift means that people could die. And you go crazy without consistency. Yeah, sleep. absolutely. Like, you got to really watch your sleep watch your caloric intake, like make sure that you're taking care of yourself. I mean, Ross, the the guy that really lucked out because he had to go home on sick leave. I mean, it, it just kind of shows he had been sick a couple times before on lighthouse duty. So it really shows like the importance of taking care of yourself and sleeping. So I don't know. And then there are two articles that I found written about this. One says, strange affair at a lighthouse. So these were written in 1900. Intimation has been received at the Northern Lighthouse Board, Edinburgh, of the loss of the lighthouse staff at the Flannan Islands Lighthouse. The station was established in December last year and was staffed by four men, three taking duty and the other having relief. When the board's steamer yesterday went to the island to land the relieving keeper, it was found that the three men last on duty had disappeared, leaving no trace behind. They are the principal keeper, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. The latter was an occasional keeper on duty in place of a sick member of the regular staff. It is surmised that they were swept away during the storm of last week, either when attempting to save a crane or when trying to render assistance to some vessel in distress. The relieving keeper and three other men have been temporarily left on the island. No such incident has ever happened in the history of the lighthouse board, and it is provident that it did not result in disaster to any passing vessel. On October 10th, 2015, the Sunday Post published an article titled, Has the Mystery of the Flannan Isles Finally Been Solved? by Mike Merritt. And I fucking hate this article because it's a skeptic article, mm. but I'm going to read it to you. So Merritt writes, Leading naturalist John Love, who has extensively researched the tragedy 20 miles off the tip of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides, claims two of the keepers had been previously fined for not storing gear properly in a prior storm, and that must have been in the back of their minds. Instead of staying out of the fierce gale, they ventured out to make sure their equipment was safe, only to be hit by a huge wave. As part of his book, A Natural History of Lighthouses, Mr. Love managed to piece together a complete assessment of the mystery. Based on all available records, to explain what happened to James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. However, the expert has rubbished claims of a toppled chair and a number of unfinished meals that were found by rescuers on Boxing Day 1900. 
Mr. Love said, It was only after 1912, when English poet Wilfred Wilson Gibson published his epic Flannan Isle, which we just read, mm -hmm. that the story began to assume such an air of mystery, speculation, even intrigue, which is false because we literally have all the lighthouse keepers that were placed those missing ones all wrote and gave reports and interviews to the newspaper saying like this island is fucked mm -hmm. there is no mystery and never a has been there is no need to invoke the sinister or the paranormal it was purely a tragic act of nature the men got swept away by abnormally rough seas his research revealed thomas marshall had previously been branded negligent and fined five shillings after equipment was washed away during a fierce gale with this hefty fine on the back of the men's mind, Mr. Love believes that they may have ventured out to make sure everything was secure, sealing their fate. Since it was not permitted for all three men to abandon the lighthouse, only two of the men must have gone down to the landing to secure the gear. The third, Donald MacArthur, would have remained back at the lighthouse, but when his companions did not return, he would have been concerned for their safety, or else perhaps he saw a great wave approach and rushed to warn them. MacArthur may have been too late, only then to be swept away himself. He says the keepers at the newly built lighthouse may not have been totally familiar with winter storm conditions around the island, which is bullshit. The one guy had 21 years experience in the area. Did he say why the clocks are stopped? No, he doesn't talk about it. That's what I'm saying. This guy is like, I hate, I hate skeptics so much because I'm down for like a good explanation. Like I, if, if someone like dies of murder, for example, I'm all for finding the person that committed the crime. We don't have to automatically assume it was paranormal circumstances. Let the person who is responsible stand trial, right? In this case, that's not, we don't know what happened to them. And he's just like, oh, ignore the clocks. Ignore that the chair was toppled over. Ignore the weird logbook entry. Ignore the half-eaten meal. Ignore that MacArthur wouldn't have been able to hear anyone screaming. Ignore that MacArthur wouldn't have been able to see any waves approaching from the window. Uh, ignore that it doesn't make any sense that he would have left his oil skin there and gone out to try to find the men when they didn't return. Ignore all of that. Like, I hate it. I don't like it. So another accident that happened is a horse called Billy um, was uh, died, dropped dead suddenly on the island after these men disappeared when they brought a bunch of people over to like do maintenance on mm. the lighthouse. There was a horse there and the horse dropped dead. Some people think that this is a cover-up, which I kind of agree with because I looked on the Northern... Something's being covered yes, up. Yes, absolutely. And I looked on the Northern Lighthouse Board's website because they still exist today and they have a whole page dedicated to this incident. And if you read it, it's literally a PR like publication. You know, the official website says their disappearances were only discovered as a result of the routine visit by lighthouse tender Hesperus. That's not true. We already know it's not true. This was not a routine visit. They went out there to see why the lighthouse wasn't on because that other passing ship radioed in saying, hey, something's wrong. I'm passing by and this lighthouse isn't on. So I already know that's a lie. A vessel had passed the Flannan Islands at about midnight on 15 December and on arrival in port had reported that the light was not seen. However, this wasn't communicated to the Northern Lighthouse Board until the keeper's disappearance had already been discovered by Hesperus. Lie, because we have proof of the transmissions, mm -hmm. okay? Captain Harvey reported that on arrival at the Flannans during the afternoon of 26 December, there was no sign of life to be seen on the island and no response was made to a rocket fired from the ship. The relieving keeper, Joseph Moore, went up to the lighthouse but found no one there. 
Moore reported the facts to the master and later returned to the island with three others, all three having volunteered to remain on the island with Moore to keep the light in operation. The disappearance was immediately and thoroughly investigated, and it was concluded that due to the very bad weather on the island, the men was, must have left the lighthouse for some purpose or another, probably to secure the gear to find out what damage had been done to one of the landing places, and had been caught by an unexpected large roller and swept into the sea. None of these explain the clocks. I know. Okay, let's like pretend ghosts and sirens and all that doesn't exist. Maybe if we try and think of this completely logically, they stopped the clocks before they went out, thinking like, oh, this will tell them that we left at three in case someone is looking or something. I don't know. I just can't. I can't figure out why someone would stop the clocks unless it was to trick somebody. Yes. Yeah, so if we believe that a human stopped the clock, mm-hmm. clocks, then I agree that perhaps it was done to trick somebody. However, if we think, you know, like in all the scary movies and like ghost stories that we read, clocks just stop at 3 a.m. Right. Yeah. because it's the witching hour if there's an evil presence in the area. Yeah. So if we think that this was a supernatural incident, then it makes sense that the clocks would all stop at 3 because of a... Um, supernatural presence or paranormal presence in the area yeah so either you think that the guy went crazy and shut all the clocks off at the same time or that some other presence was there and um caused the men's death i mean i just feel like i can't know unless i go there myself i know maybe we have to go there a movie came out last year called the vanishing with gerard butler oh yeah and it's literally about it's a dramatization uh, or you know you know based on a true story but it's about this incident and gerard butler plays one of the lighthouse assistant keepers along with two other keepers i haven't seen the movie and so i don't i didn't want to spoil it for myself because i kind of want to watch it the show doctor who had a story in one of their episodes based on this real life story and it was called horror of fang rock The mystery was also the inspiration for the composer Peter Maxwell Davies' modern chamber opera, The Lighthouse, in 1979. And British rock group Genesis wrote and recorded The Mystery of Flannan Isle Lighthouse. Maybe they're doing all this praying and then they got what they wanted. They're like, please, something, get me off this island. (laughs) Well, you want to know the shitty part? So you know how two of the guys were married and then the 28-year-old wasn't married? He just lived with his dad and, and brother? Yeah. Or sister? You know, this is like early workers' comp. So when these guys are killed on the job, the laws in Scotland at the time were that only if you had a wife would your family receive compensation. So the two guys, um, McCormick and Ducat, their wives received compensation from the Northern Lighthouse Board. But the third guy, the youngest one, he didn't get any money like his family didn't get any money and so his dad tried to sue and be like that's not fair my son is dead you you don't you can't tell me what happened to him like you guaranteed his safety as an employee of your company and there's you're like doing this weird cover-up and they never he lost the court case because the laws at the time said only if you're married what if it was like an insurance fraud type thing oh like they all disappeared so that their families well could... the the guy the people with the wives maybe killed the other guy or maybe he died and they were like oh let's like fake all this supernatural stuff cover it up i don't know yeah that's another possibility just adding flame to this fire and i want to play like 30 seconds of this opera for you oh they're dressed like the lighthouse guys thing i can hear is the lighthouse ship if you really are these three people that died in this basically freak accident imagine knowing that after your death people are making movies and operas about your death right and now i'm going to play for you the genesis song 
sounds like this, the start of a musical. Flannel Isles in the south by the point of Kerjury. 47 miles from land in the roughest part of the sea. Oh. It's like way too happy. They say the wicked spirits haunt the lighthouse in the night. So even in that song, they talk about it was the wicked spirit. That's the end of the story. What theory do you like the best before we end this episode? I'll tell you what I like the best. Okay. Siren. Yeah. I think it's a siren because all of the historic accounts we have of this island written throughout history by the various inhabitants say that they constantly heard people calling out to them that were not there and they blamed it on seagulls crying out and then their cries get echoed through all the caves and then it sounds like a human crying when it's not but it's not that they were hearing screams they thought they were literally hearing people saying help me come help me i'm over here we usually are introduced to sirens for sailors who have been at sea for like a really long time right it's basically like a bunch of straight dudes who are not getting laid and they're for horny like months yeah. On end. yeah and they're like i hear a woman in the ocean gotta jump in yeah exactly. gotta get my dick sucked by a fish yeah exactly <laughs> so it's a little peculiar that people who haven't been on the island that long like are saying that they hear this voice like the guy who just got off the boat to see what was up and some people think that those two builders that fell off the cliff some people think that they actually jumped off the cliff because they heard something calling out to them mm. you know that song from moana that's like there's a sun and you know that song the line hits the sea and the sky and oh yeah yeah see the line when the sky hits the sea it calls me and no one knows how far it goes yeah, this reminds me of that, but I'm just like picturing two guys jumping to their jumping off the cliff yeah, singing the Moana like, song. <laughs> it's like their suicide and they're like, and where it goes. Yes. I'll never know. <laughs> yeah, that's dark. Great story. So wait, what what do you think? Because you have to keep in mind the bioluminescent seaweed, the clock I know, stopping. No, I'm keeping everything in mind and I can't figure it out. This is how I feel when I take tests. I'm like, yeah. every answer is right. What do you yes, want from right? me? Is there a D all of the above option? Yeah. It was aliens, pirates, sirens, and ghosts and killer birds. Oh, let's do process of elimination. I don't think it was pirates. I don't think pirates no. have mm -hmm. anything to do there. I don't think it was alien abduction just because... Uh, my understanding of aliens is that they don't drive people crazy. Yes, correct. I would agree with that. Murder? So, um, murder. I think if it was murder, ugh, I guess like it could have pushed him off and then gone. Kraken makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Pulled into another dimension. Mercury poisoning makes a lot of sense. Oh. I just can't figure out this clock stopping at 3 a.m. I know. It's thing. so infuriating. It's driving me nuts. Yeah. Maybe it was a siren. I think I want to... Sirens I, are mermaids, right? In popular culture, they either can take the form of like a very like beautiful mermaid or it could be like literally a gross like fish woman with like these jagged teeth yeah but they have such sweet voices calling out that like. it lures men to them and then they just like eat them and consume but it's them. a mermaid this mermaid couldn't like go up and change the clocks if they are a supernatural presence maybe they could like send some type of energy that lures the men in and that energy can stop the clocks oh. or we also have to think of too the guy that said god is above us and he mm -hmm. was not religious right. like something is on top of us right now yeah or that he suddenly believes in supernatural stuff based yeah because he saw something yeah maybe he just like 
was thinking like, oh, I'm the new captain now. Yeah, this maybe. Is sick. Yeah, this like is good. He murdered the primary keeper and then kept this fake logbook because he was going crazy from mercury poisoning and jumped off a cliff. This is gonna drive me crazy. I'm gonna I have know. to Google this. The lost lighthouse keepers of Island Moor. Thank you very much to everybody for listening. We love you. Leave comments in the SoundCloud because I want to see what you guys think about this. Agree with me. Say that you think it's sirens. Yeah, I think it was an, an aerial. All right, guys, give us a follow. Buy our pop sockets. If you want to donate to us, at DogMomUSA, at NatStron on Venmo. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye. My sources for this episode are historic-uk.com, wikipedia.org, mentalfloss.com, grunge.com, nlb.org.uk, sundaypost.com, husheduphistory.com, Lighthouse, The Mystery of Island Moor Lighthouse Keepers by Keith McCloskey, and The Scariest Places in the World by Bob Curran. Ooh, I like that last one.